asking in that that love. But Father God, I thank you for revelation. I thank you for understanding of your love and your mercy and your grace, but your love, your perfect love. Lord, we bless you today. We thank you. good that we can just breathe in his his goodness and his his presence just is overwhelming just breathe just rest in his love thank you Jesus we are going to continue our worship Because we get to give, that's part of our worship, we get to do this. And if you will, let's let's declare this over our lives. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposed it is in heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, you may give. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. I know it's rainy and gloom outside. Come on, man. Bring some energy. Good morning, everybody. I'm happy to see all of you guys. And plus, not only that, but we also have a coffee bar outside, so there's no excuses now. We can all get hyped up and jittery before we come in here. So no, no more tired people. Uh, are we online, Nick? Awesome. Everyone in-house, will you say good morning to everyone online? One more time. And one more time. Good morning, the trifecta of good mornings. It's great to see all of you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josiah Hodge. I'm the lead pastor and lead servant here at Crossroads World Outreach Center. But this isn't about me today, and this isn't necessarily about Jamie. It's about Jesus. But I am so honored to have Bishop Jamie with us. Anyone who's been here Friday and Saturday, have this not been amazing? Man. And I'm just glad to have the rest of our church family here this morning to, to take part at the culmination of this encounter weekend. Uh, but I just want to 
really give a little promo for Jamie, how I came to know Jamie. And I came to know Bishop Jamie through uh, Pastor Joshua Jones, who will be with us at the end of April. Uh, Pastor Joshua Jones is actually the one that led me to the Lord my freshman year of college, where I actually started following Jesus. And so Pastor Josh and I reconnected about two years ago and started building relationship back up. And I, he said, hey, man, listen, I know you're on this journey, so let me preface it by saying there came a season in my life where I kept saying to myself, there's got to be more to this Christian life than I'm experiencing. There's, there's got to be more freedom. I've been told my whole life there's freedom in Jesus, but I'm not seeing it. I'm not experiencing it. I'm struggling with the same sin cycles in my life, and I'm really fed up with this. There's got to be more to Jesus than I've been taught, more to Jesus than I know. And in my own personal time of struggling and wrestling, there were, there were two passages in the book of John that grabbed me, shook me around, shook my whole way of thinking, and changed my entire worldview of the way I see Christianity and the way I see God and the way I see Jesus. And that is John chapter 1, verse 18, where John says, No man has ever seen God except the one who comes from his very being, his very essence, who is the Son of God. He came to reveal him, explain him, and declare him to the world. So I'm like, whoa, 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 all these people have claimed to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And the leaders we preach about, Moses, Elijah, Abraham, David, all these people we love to preach about, be like these people. And here's Jesus. Well, what the heck do I do with Jesus now? Because I just, I just read this for the first time with new eyes of seeing only Jesus can reveal the Father. In John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father. And Jesus looks to Philip and says, Philip, how long will I be with you all until you realize when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Now this threw me for a whirlwind because I had been in church so long that the Old Covenant and New Covenant were simultaneous. And Jesus was alongside Moses and Elijah. And I heard Moses and Elijah and Abraham and David preached far more than I heard Jesus preach my entire life. So I was stuck in this place of struggling. Well, how do I get to where I'm trying to go, where I know the Holy Spirit's calling me because the journey is scary sometimes. How do I get there? And Joshua Jones introduces me to Jamie's teachings and says, hey man, go listen to some of Jamie's teachings. And at this point, I just wanted Jesus. I was tired of the fluff and everything else of religion, all these man-made rules. I was really tired of, of this Jesus that we had made in our own image instead of just letting Jesus stand for himself. I wanted the unvarnished Jesus that I wanted so badly. Not the varnished Jesus of politics, not the varnished Jesus of religion. I just wanted Jesus because Jesus was a revolutionary. He was so revolutionary that when he died, he only had 150 people following him because his message was truly that revolutionary. It scared people. He scared people. He scares me sometimes because of the revolution that happens in my own soul. So I start listening to Bishop Jamie's teachings, and something starts stirring inside of me. And he told the story on Friday, I believe, but he keeps getting email alerts that people are, that someone's buying his teachings. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of dollars of teachings and e-courses, and, and he's like, who the heck is buying my stuff? And after listening to about 15 hours of his teachings, I finally got bold enough just to Facebook message him because I felt like I knew him at that point. I mean, you hear 15 hours of someone's teachings, you just, you feel like you bonded with someone. So I shot him a Facebook message, and little did I know it would turn into this relationship. And I want to tell you, Bishop Jamie will, will challenge your way of thinking. Sometimes it might scare you. Sometimes it might make you uncomfortable. But the thing about Bishop Jamie is Bishop Jamie is a good Berean, and he will always tell you this. You don't believe me? That's okay. Go study for yourself. And I don't know about you guys, but I've been challenged this week. But guess what? I felt the Holy Spirit just stirring inside of me, man. I knew it was Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wants to take us a place. And listen, this isn't anything new. This is what the early church taught for the first 500 years of the church. 
So, man, today I am excited. I'm excited for you guys to hear Bishop Jamie. Can we hear it for Bishop Jamie? Thank you, Pastor Josiah. Good morning, everybody. Man, he topped yesterday introduction. Told him yesterday I need to take him on the road with me and introduce me. Lord have mercy. Just as long as I don't believe my own press, it's all good. I'd rather the people see him anyway. If people focus on you, I guess you missed the whole point. But but I, I do appreciate that. And and I honor your your pastors here. It was great to be able to finally uh, not just do a, a FaceTime or, or Zoom, but be able to finally meet them and and his sweetheart, and those boys, and uh, just absolutely precious. And, of course, the team here, you guys have been absolutely awesome, extremely hospitable, and received us so well. It's such a great night the last two nights. I, I tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed myself, and I'd love to tell you that just I can say that everywhere I go around the world. I'm, I'm telling you, there's sometimes uh, I just feel like folks are just taking what I'm releasing and just trying to shove it right back down my throat. And you guys have been literally pulling it out of me, and it, it has been a joy to be here. And so uh, I bless you all. Well, I, I want to get right into my assignment. I'd love to talk to you uh, about my book, but you all bought all the books that I had already. Uh, you can, though, if you're interested. I wrote a book called Myths and Mistranslations. And for me, it was 50 years of asking a lot of questions about stuff that I was taught growing up in church that just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, things like the the mythical age of accountability. I remember what started to turn my heart away from church and away from God at about about 11 or 12 years old is we moved from northern Michigan to mid-Michigan where I was raised from 10 years old on. It was my parents' hometown, my parents' home church. That's where my dad got saved was in that church. He went home to lead his home church. And my best friend in the little town we were in was three years older than me. His name was Todd. And our family was Todd's stability. His mother was addicted to prescription drugs. His brother was, you know, back then we called it something else. Now I look back, he was autistic and, and he was special needs. And then uh, his dad was in prison, so he had no home life. So he was at our house. Like he had supper almost every night at our house. He came to church with us. You know, he, he, found, he found Jesus there, went to camp with me, got filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, his life, our family was in stability, but then we moved. And when we moved, and that was no longer there, and him and I would talk every week on the phone, and this was back, you know, you had to wait till after 9 o'clock because it would cost you an arm and a leg to call, which, you know, that still, it still blows my kids away when I told them how much it used to cost just to call someone long distance. They're like, what? You know, they're, they're like, $5 a minute. Are you kidding me? And uh, so we'd wait, we'd talk at night, and about six months later, I come home from school. And my parents had this real somber look on their face. They sat me down. They said, son, we need to talk to you. And I said, what's going on? They said, well, we just got a phone call. Uh, Todd, uh, he OD'd last night. He had gotten around some wrong friends, and they had they'd given him some heroin. First time he'd ever tried it. He wasn't an addict. He, he was just trying to fit in, and he overdosed when he was 13 years old. And I remember I, I looked at my dad, and I said, well, dad, Todd's in heaven, right? Because he accepted Jesus. And my dad, with the understanding he had and how he was raised, he said, well, no, son. Uh, he's past the age of accountability. He's now 13 years old, and he knew better, and he's in hell. And I, I remember looking at my dad, and I said, so you're telling me that if, if he would have OD'd when he was still 12, on the 12th month, on the 30th day, at 1159, he'd be in. But because he passed over some magical number, 
all of a sudden, don't pass go, don't collect $200 straight to hell. And my dad was like, he wasn't sure even how to answer me. And it actually caused me to really get angry at God. And I was like, if he's that petty, and I guess his blood is so weak, that one misstep from you, I mean, obviously we know it's ridiculous because uh, that's not the heart of any father. And he didn't try to kill himself. But, but regardless, that, that led me down a road of asking all kinds of questions about all the stuff I was taught that just didn't line up with the Jesus inside me. And the funny thing is, uh, Pastor Josiah and I, we were talking about this uh, over the last few days, is that the one thing I have people tell me as I travel and preach is they tell me what you're talking about is what we've always known on the inside, but we were being confused by a lot of the stuff we were taught. Matter of fact, a lot of people tell me, man, my first month saved, the Jesus you're talking about, that's the one I experienced. But then we went to church. Because <laughs> the truth is this, no one has been under the law of Moses for 2,000 years. The only way you get put under law is you go to church and we preachers put you under law because you were never under it in the first place. We, we have put a lot of legalism on people and everything else, and God is now wanting to set us completely free. But anyway, that book, I've got 70 of those things like that that just explain a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. You can, get it on, you can get it on Amazon. You can also go to my website and download an audio version. And a lot of times people don't have time to sit and read anymore, but you can listen uh, at work or driving down the road, and you can download that. So please, please check that out. I believe it will be a blessing to you. I've got a whole bunch of other material and product out there. Uh, it, you know, buy that up because it helps us in our traveling and going to the nations and everything that we do. So uh, please avail yourself to that. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to John. Uh, last two nights we were in 1 John, and now we're going to go to the book of John, chapter number 13. I want to read to you a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, and we're going to get some fresh light out of it this morning. John 13 starting at verse number 33, John 13, 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now let me stop here a minute. Jesus is speaking to Jews. All of his disciples are Jews, but he says, I'm telling you something that I said something different to the Jews. So I'm going to get there in a minute. That's kind of a strange passage. Where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, for by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, one, one thing I, I want to start by saying, because I believe it's extremely important to understand, is that I remember 1993, I was sitting in Michigan, in my hometown, sitting across the table at a Red Lobster, having lunch with, uh, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century. Her name was Dr. Fuchsia Pickett. Uh, she was a mother in the faith to me, wrote over 20 books. Uh, Mama Pickett had one of the greatest revelations in the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, literally wrote a whole book called The Holy Spirit, Who Is He? It'll transform your life. If you ever see anything by her, I'm telling you, buy it. And she was a mama to all kinds of people like Dr. Miles Monroe and Dr. Mark Sharon, a lot of people that, that are pretty well known in the church world. And uh, just she had 
five, like four or five earned doctorates. She was, by the time I met her, she had osteoporosis. She walked bent over. She was 70 years old. But then when she preached, she'd be able to stand up when the anointing would come on her straight. She'd preach for an hour and a half and just make your head spin. And she was just, she was an amazing woman of God. I miss her greatly. But I'll never forget, she looked across the table. I'd only been out of Bible school three years and been preaching full time. And she looked at me and she said, son, she said, one of the number one things I could let you know is that not everything in the Old Testament is the Old Covenant and not everything in the New Testament is the New Covenant. I just got out of Bible school, and I'd gone through five years, been through seminary. Nobody ever said anything like that to me. I mean, I I just assumed because it said Old Testament and New Testament that it was all the same. But the truth is the Old Covenant was was a covenant that wasn't started until Moses. There was the Edenic Covenant before then. There was the Noah Covenant. There was the Abrahamic Covenant before the the Old Covenant, which was the, the Law of Moses, came into effect. But even in the New Testament, not everything in the New Testament is the New Covenant because all the words in red, Jesus was not speaking to Christians because there were none yet. All right, the covenant, according to Hebrews, the covenant is not enacted until the testator that wrote the covenant dies, and after his death, then the covenant comes into being. So when Jesus is teaching, he's mainly speaking to Jews that were under the law, and how many of you know the Jews are not used? It's extremely important to understand that when you read the words in red, the audience, now everything he said is important, it's all applicable to us, but we must understand who he was talking to. I I remember, uh, I think it was about my second year preaching, and I I went to preach for this pastor, and we went out to eat on Saturday night, and he, he looks across the table and he says, man, God's really been speaking to me. Man, he's been revealing some stuff. I said, well, man, that's awesome. What's he been revealing to you? Matter of fact, he said, God told me that if the rapture took place, less than 10% of my church would make it. And I was like, wow, really? Less than 10%. Where do you get that from? He said, Jesus said, narrow is the way that it leads to eternal life, and not many walk therein, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and not many walk therein. And I said, well, that's true. Jesus did say that, but you realize that Jesus was speaking to Jews under the law, and under the law, narrow was the way. Matter of fact, not only narrow, nearly impossible was the way. Matter of fact, you had to dot every I and cross every T because the law was all or nothing. You either kept all the law or you kept none of the law. You, If you broke one part of it, James says, you broke the whole thing. And so th- th- there is no either or, it's all of the above when it comes to the law. And, and, and he, he just looked at me and I said, you realize when Jesus went to the cross, he's now said, I am the door, I am the way, I am the gate. And he split the door wide open. Now whosoever will may come. Now the ways of God are narrow, but the way in is not. And he didn't really know what to do with that. And so we had a discussion. And so I was Reading this passage, and it just jumped off the page, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are all Jewish. And he said, I'm I'm telling you something different, because you see, the new covenant was in Jesus' blood. Jesus was the personification of the new covenant. He showed us how to treat other humans. Jesus did not come just to show us what God is like. He also came to show us what a human is supposed to be like. So the truth is, nobody knew how to be a true human until the true human showed up. Jesus said, listen, let let me show you what a human filled with God on the inside is supposed to treat people. Let me show you how my father feels about sin, and I don't run from sin, I run towards sin. Let me show you how I feel about your mess. I'm not here to condemn you. Instead, I'm actually here to save you and bring deliverance. And Jesus was showing us not only what the father's like, but also what a human 
is supposed to be like. And matter of fact, what's interesting is Jesus never used the word grace, but yet John said the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ because grace is not just a feeling. Grace is a person. Jesus is grace. Paul taught us all about it. The apostles taught us about it. Jesus never brought the word up, but he was it. Everything about him was grace. And so he says this. He said, I'm telling you something different than, I'm, than I told the Jews. And Jesus wasn't being anti-Semitic when he did this because obviously Jesus is raised by Jewish parents. He's raised in a Jewish culture. He's not being anti-Jewish. But whenever you see the phrase, the Jews, in the New Testament, you can actually go over to the book of Acts 2. And Paul one day is preaching in a few cities. And the scripture says certain Jews came from Jerusalem and stirred the people up against them. And when they're using that phrase, what their meaning is religious religious people. He's not talking about the whole Jewish nation or Hebrews or, or, the, or the people as a whole. What he's saying is certain religious people came and they stirred the people up to stone Paul. Actually, they stoned him, threw him off a wall, left him for dead. But then it said believers gathered around him and raised him from the dead. I preached a sermon years ago called Ben Stone Lately. Hallelujah, because religion knows how to stone you. That's All religion knows how to do is pick up the law and beat the tower out of you. But believers will raise you from the dead. Believers, <laughs> pun intended. And so he said, I, 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 I'm now, and Jesus was amazing at this. He'd, he'd share a message. And you know what's amazing? Jesus hardly ever quoted scripture. I mean, if most people went and listened to Jesus preach today, they'd be like, well, when's he going to open up the Bible? I mean, they get all upset. I mean, he, he, he'd say stuff like the kingdom of God is like a farmer. I mean, he, just, he told stories, told parables, and then would give things. But then the disciples would pull him aside and say, what are you talking about? And he'd be like, how long do I got to put up with you guys? Are you that dense? And he'd pull them aside, and then he would then explain to them what he was meaning in the new covenant. He would preach to the crowds one thing, and he'd pull his disciples aside and bring explanation. So here he says, I told the Jews one thing, but now I'm telling you something. And he says something wild. He said, I've got a new commandment. Matter of fact, you know, it's the only thing in the New Testament that is actually called a commandment. Jesus gave principles. Jesus gave all kinds of precepts to us. He, he taught us wonderful things, but it's the only thing he called a commandment. And he said, I'm, I'm going to take the law and the prophets. I'm going to take all 613. But you've got to understand something. The people Jesus was speaking to, which were Second Temple Jews in that first century, that, that, that they didn't have the 613 laws of Moses. By the time Jesus showed up, over a 400-year period from Malachi to Matthew, the Jews, the scribes, and the Pharisees had added 245 laws to the law of Moses plus 365 prohibitions. So by the time Jesus showed up, there was 1,100 rules to keep. No wonder Jesus shows up and he says, anybody tired, anybody weary, anybody burned out in religion? And they were like, yes, yes, and yes. They're like, my Lord, we are exhausted trying to keep all these dang rules. What in the world? And so Jesus... He said, I'm going to simplify all this. I'm going to give you one. We're going to take all of this because love is the fulfillment of the law, according to Romans 10. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to simplify it for you. He said, I'm going to give you one commandment. Everybody say one. Just, just one. Love one another as I have loved you. 
I say again, love one another. He said, I'm, I'm going to simplify this. He said, I, I want you to just radically love humans. Matter of fact, he said, this is the litmus test. How people will know that you follow me is not that you go to church every Sunday. It's not that you pay your tithes. It's not that you show up to every prayer meeting. It's not that you have an incredible intercession ministry. It's not how much you pray in tongues. It's not when you pray for people, they fall on the floor. It's not how many sick people you heal. It, it's, it's not if your prophecies are accurate every single time. And all those are good things. Those are all good Christian things to do. But he said the only litmus test is that you love humans. See, this is why I'm convinced a lot of the American church prefers Moses over Jesus. Because with Moses, most of the relationship under the law was this way. Matter of fact, Jesus is asked one day, and what confuses us is Jesus says things like this. He's asked questions, what's the greatest commandment under the law? And he says the greatest commandment under the law is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they knew he was going to say that, but then he threw a monkey wrench in, and he said, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he went on to say in Luke, for these are the same. In other words, how you love God is actually how you prove your love by loving your neighbor. And that's a good thing. Love God, love your neighbor, that's a good thing. But actually, that's an old covenant message. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it's highly subjective on what you feel about yourself. Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, what if you run into your neighbor on a day that you don't like yourself? I mean, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you run into me on a good day, it's going to be good for you. Okay, I mean, money's in the bank, the family's good, nobody's crazy, everybody's healthy. Woo, I'm having a good day, man. I mean, the car's not broke down, and you run into me on that day, I like me, I love me, and I'm going to love you the way I love myself. But you run into me on one of those days, and I know you all are more spiritual than me, you don't have them anymore. But you run into me on one of those days where, you know, I mean, you had two babies that kept you up all night, and you didn't have no sleep, and, and the cup of coffee didn't even work, and all of a sudden someone comes and gets a little ugly with you. On that day, it's going to stink for you because... I'm not even sure I like me today, let alone like Jesus. But that's why Jesus said this new commandment, it's deeper than that. He said, I don't want you to love your neighbor just the way you love yourself. I want you to love them the way I love them. He said, that takes it to a whole nother level because that means I'm always patient. I'm always kind. I'm not envious. I'm not boastful. I'm not easily angered. I keep no record of wrong. Ugh. What? You don't know what they did. That's why a lot of people prefer Moses because we like that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth stuff. That turn the other cheek stuff, that love your enemy stuff, eh. It's in the same book. I'll take Moses. Jesus lets us know there's only one litmus test. I mean, let, let, let's be honest. If you were to go to Walmart and you were to interview people on Facebook Live or on TikTok and you were to tell them, what is your opinion about God, church, and Christians? Now, you might run into someone that's visited Crossroads. And says, man, some of the most loving, kind people I've ever met. In my entire life. But let's be honest, 
Nine times out of ten, what you'd hear is, is, is mean, judgmental, full of shame, make me feel like there's something, always something wrong with me. I mean, rarely do you hear, man, some of the most loving people I've ever met in my life. And, hmm? The one thing we're supposed to be known for tends to be the one thing we're known the least for. We're known more for our picketing. We're, more, we're known more for who we're against. I mean, for some reason, Christians, if they're not fighting somebody, they don't even really know what to do. And so we've got to have up all of our little things. We, we've got to always be against somebody. And then CNN and MSNBC and the news agencies, they never put a Christian with sense on there. They always put the one that, that's got the sign saying, God hates queers. They always got to put the guy with a sign that, isn't showing the love of God at all. The one that loves to quote scripture, loves to be biblical, but doesn't know how to be Christ-like. I said it last night. Jesus had no problem becoming unbiblical in order to be Christ-like. A woman caught in the act of adultery, it was biblical as a Jew for him to pick up a stone and stone her, but he chose to show her Christ-likeness. He was never supposed to touch a leper. That's unclean. That's against the law. He chose to be unbiblical in order to be Christ-like because the point of the Bible is to point us to be Christ-like. It's to be like Jesus. The law and the prophets spoke of him. If we're not being like him, man, I know people that are biblical. They follow the Bible to the tooth and to the nail, and they're the meanest people you ever met. Some of the meanest people I know go to church every Sunday. Their favorite verse is be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil. We should be some of the most joyful, happiest. People should want to be around us. People were constantly want to be around Jesus. He was a friend of sinners because he was a party waiting to happen. One thing I love about the Chosen series is you actually get to see that Jesus is He's smiling most of the time. Little kids come running to him because they felt safe in his presence. That's the Jesus that we're supposed to be showing. Instead, a lot of times, rather than do the one, the one thing, I wonder what would happen if the whole body of Christ spent one year just focusing on the one, the one thing. Now, see, this is also what confuses us. So that's John 13. But then you go over to John 14 and John 15, and you read things like this. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And they say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You just said you, you, you've got a brand new commandment, the only commandment in the new covenant. But then you say, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But that's because that's a translation issue. It's the exact same Greek word as commandment. And the translators chose to put plural on there. And it's not plural in the Greek language. It literally should say, if you love me, you keep my commandment. Because why would he tell us? Love as I have loved, and then turn around and say, now, on top of it, keep the 613 or the 1100. It doesn't make, doesn't make any sense because the one encompasses all the rest anyway. See, we're still under law in the new covenant. We're just not under the law of sin and death. We're not under the law of Moses. We're still governed, but we're under what's called the royal law, the law of liberty, the law of life, the law of love. We're still governed by love because if I love you, I'm not going to sleep with your wife. If I love you, I'm not going to covet. If I love you, I'm going to do certain things because love is the point. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. And so... I shared the last couple nights on the love of the Father. 
of the yellow USB series I have out on the table. I did that series uh, about nine years ago at our, our church in the inner city of Saginaw, Michigan. Saginaw, per capita, has been one of the top three most dangerous cities in America for uh, more than a dozen years. And we started a church 11 years ago right in the, right in the inner city. And uh, I told God when we started the church, I said, I don't, uh, we only did Sunday nights. We didn't do Sunday mornings because the people we were trying to reach didn't get home till 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. And they're not going to get up at 10 a.m. And, and, and come visit unless their niece is singing or, or there's food. Uh, well, let's just be honest, most of the time. It's, it's church people that show up normally Sunday mornings. And, uh, and on top of it, uh, I said, God, I, I, I don't want just... I don't want to empty churches out. I'd preached at a lot of churches in the area, and there were pastors that were a little nervous. I met with all of them, but they were a little nervous, thinking I was going to empty the church out. I said, I'm not. I said, I tr trust you. Most of you have maybe two people in your church that are even going to like what we're doing. They're going to be terrified of most of the stuff we're doing because it's going to be way too free for them. They're going to, they're going to walk in and just be nervous immediately. And that, that happened quite regularly. And so uh, I made... Uh, I made this prayer. I said, God, what, what I want is I, 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 want the, I want the alcoholic and the addict and I want the prostitute on the east side to be able to wake up on a Sunday and say, I've had a miserable weekend. And I just need to go somewhere where I won't be judged, where I feel safe, where I'll be radically loved. And their first response is to come visit us. I said, I, 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 want, I want the strippers two miles down the road at the Deja Vu. They got followed home that night. And the only reason she's stripping is because she doesn't have an education. She's got two kids, and she don't know how to be able to pay the bills. It's the only thing she knows how to do. But she knows that she can come and be in a place that's safe without judgment or shame. I also want the millionaire out in the township, and this happened to us, that has his own issues, and that millionaire who hurt his back, and he's now lost his family, he's lost his house and his business, and he's looking at jail time because he kept going to his next-door neighbor, the doctor's house, and writing his own prescriptions because he got addicted to Vicodin. It doesn't matter if you're up and out or down and out. Everybody has issues. I don't care how pretty it looks on the outside. Everybody's dysfunctional. If it looks like a perfect family, they're the scariest ones. Hello, Stepford Wives. I'm just telling you, everybody's got dysfunction. Everybody got a crazy uncle. Everybody got a crazy cousin. Listen, I'm, I'm just telling you, there's dysfunction everywhere. I don't care who you are. The crazy aunt's number. <laughs> He's like, that's bad. Uh, got to be careful here. A lot of folks are related. I know I kept meeting people. That, <laughs> kept meeting people that say we're related to have everybody in here. <laughs> I said, Lord, I, I want all of them to be able to come. And it'd be a place that they'll be radically loved because that's our job. Our job is not to clean fish. Our job is to catch fish. Problem in the church world is we tried to clean them before we ever caught them. And then we wonder why they didn't want anything to do with this because we thought it was our job to straighten people up. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit's a better Holy Spirit than you are. He does a whole lot better job than we do. Well, I, I, I got in the middle of that series and had, had a young man walk up, and, and uh, his name's James. James. James used to run the Latin Kings in our town, which was a, a Hispanic 
uh, gang, which is a pretty rough gang. James, James was on the streets since he was 10 years old. Uh, he was a bouncer in a few clubs, big old boy. At that time, he was the, the largest uh, pot dealer in our county, which, you know, back there in Michigan, now that's legal, so it became kind of irrelevant. And uh, he come up to me after the series I did on love, and he put his arm around me. He always called me Pops. He said, Pops. He said, you know, you talk a lot about pre-cross and post-cross. And he said, that Bible you gave me, I've been reading after the cross, and I can't find anywhere where we're told how to love God. He said, before the cross, if you love me, you do this. If you love me, you keep my commandments. If, if you love me, you'll do this. And he said, there's all these rules, and it tells us what to do to prove our love for God. He said, but after the cross, I can't find it outside of 1 John that said, if you say you love God who you cannot see and you hate your brother who you can see, the love of God is not in you. And he said, the only thing I can find is we prove our love for God post-cross by how we love humans. And I said to him, I said, be honest with you, I've never thought about it before. I'll get back to you. And I went and I started reading again and studying. I was like, Lord, have mercy. He's right. And then the Holy Spirit whispered something to me, and he said this. You will know that you're maturing in the love of God when you can view every human as Jesus. Not every human is God, every human as Jesus. The Lord then took me to Matthew 25, and in Matthew 25, he's talking about righteousness when he returns, and Jesus said some crazy stuff like this. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And they said, when did this happen? He said, if you've done it to the least of these, then you've actually done it unto me. In other words, how you treat the marginalized, he said, is actually what you think about me. But before that, in Matthew 25, it, it starts out talking about sheep and goats. Now, I've sat in whole Saturday seminars, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, known as eschatological, and Matthew 25, I mean, I've heard whole things that said there's goat nations and there's sheep nations, but Jesus wasn't talking to Jews, he was talking to Jews. He's talking to first century Jews, and to a first century Jew, when he brought up goats, and he brought up sheep, they would have not been thinking about nations. They would have been thinking about sacrifices. Their mind would have made, went immediately to the atonement offering. Their mind would have went to the sin offering. Their mind wouldn't have went to certain types of people. They wouldn't have been thinking about Russia and China and, and all of these other nations, supposed goat nations. I mean, they just wouldn't have been thinking that way. And, and, and in that mindset, it's this. The atonement offering, which was the sheep, the lamb offering, that was the offering that, that brought atonement, at one meant. In other words, it was reconciliatory. It was relational. It was about bringing people into relationship. But then the sin offering was the goat, and the goat was Azazel, and that was the goat that was then, it would be blindfolded by the high priest, blood would be put on its head, and it would go walk off a cliff and die, and that was the sin offering that was offered up, and Jesus actually fulfilled both. He was not only the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world, but he was also crucified outside the camp, and he was our sin offering also, and so he also became Azazel, and he took care of the whole deal for us. But the goat mindset is this. It's a scapegoat. This is what scapegoating thinks like. Adam and Eve, where are you? We hid. Why did you hide? Because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? And Adam says, that woman you gave me. 
<laughs> scapegoating is blame shifting. Scapegoating is always saying, well, they or them or those. It's a mindset that it's not about bringing people into restoration and into relationship. It's a mindset that is a religious mindset. I mentioned it to you the last two nights. The word Pharisee means separatist. The moment you have a mindset of putting people in categories of us versus them, you're not a Christian, you're a modern-day Pharisee. Because Phariseeism is always pointing the finger, those people, those white people, those black people, those Asian people, those Hispanic people, those Indian people, those Muslims, those homosexuals, those Republicans, those Democrats, those liberals, those conservatives, those, those. I mean, the last three years, we've had a whole lot of that in the church. I know people that, that have been friends 50 years who don't talk to each other anymore because of the last election because it was all, you're one of them. You're one of those people, those rich people, those poor people. And then you get in the church, Lord have mercy, those Catholics, those Lutherans, those Baptists, those Pentecostals, those greasy grace people, those law people. I mean, I mean, it's just we're constantly trying to do those people and us and them, and all of us have either been one of them to somebody, or we all still view somebody as one of them. You might not be prejudiced when it comes to color of skin, but that guy standing at the light asking for money, you drive by him every time in disgust. Those widows and those orphans. See, there's, the, the, there's something, something that happens. The thing that was amazing about Jesus' teaching and this is something we've read, we read past because we've not viewed that all of the New Testament was about a transition out of Judaism and under the law into grace and into the kingdom. Most of Jesus' sermons, he was trying to explain to the Jews that the new covenant was about to include all the people that they had excluded. In other words, God was about to include all of those people. And they would get upset about it. And we read all these parables and we're not paying attention because Jesus would give a parable like the great Samaritan. And he said a priest walked by him, a rabbi walked by him. But, but, but it was the person that actually ministered life to him and acted more like Jesus was actually the other, the outsider, the one that you think God doesn't even love. Then he'd say things like this, he said, the kingdom of God is like a man who threw a great party and he bid all that were invited to come. Who was invited? The Jews. They were the chosen people of God. They had the covenant. But one by one, they started to make excuse and he gets angry and he sends a servant out into the highways and byways to compel all of those who weren't invited to the party to now come to the party. Listen, Jesus was crucified not because of who he excluded. He was crucified because of who he included. Matter of fact, Jesus turning over tables in the temple and sitting down and taking three strands of rope and making a whip, that wasn't Jesus all ticked off. It was zeal that was in him, not anger that was in him. I mean, I, I used to, man, when I was an angry preacher before, those of you that were here last night, before I had my encounter with liquid love over 12, 10, 12 years ago that literally transformed my life where the love of God consumed me for two months, before that happened, I was a preacher where that verse was one of my go-to ones. Well, you all, you all, you all serve that lovely God. I serve of the God that went into the temple and kicked some tail, man. That's my Jesus. He took a whip at those folks. He was a man. That's my Jesus. Until you begin to realize that Jesus never used the whip on any humans. 
is he came to be whipped, not to whip. Everything about him was nonviolent. He used the whip to drive out animals. And the reason he was so angry, because he makes this statement. He drives out the animals and the money changers, and he said, my, house, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And you've made it a den of thieves. Because if you understand what was going on historically, there was the outer court of the temple, but then there was an extra outer court that was the Gentile outer court. And when the Gentiles would come that embraced Judaism, they were selling them in the outer Gentile court inferior sacrifices so that their sacrifice really wouldn't be accepted. And Jesus come in, his anger was because they were excluding the people that God was trying to include. Matter of fact, I'm going to need you to stick with me real close and, and you know, pastor can explain this more when I leave and clean it up. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is not a story about compartments of hell. Actually has absolutely nothing to do with that. It was actually an Egyptian and Greek fable. Everybody listening to it knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. It would be like if I today stood up here and, and I used an illustration and I used Hansel and Gretel as an illustration. They would have all known it. And Jesus is talking to a bunch of Jews, and they get so angry after the story that they try to stone him. That bothered me for years. I'm like, why would they get so angry at Jesus if he's talking about the afterlife? Because to Jews, their idea of the afterlife all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Covenant was soul sleep. They believed that when you died, you went into Sheol, into Hades, into the grave, and you slept with your fathers. And then when the Messiah would come, he would break through the gate of Sheol, the gate of Hades, at Caesarea Philippi, also called the gate of Pan. It's still there today. And Jesus is standing there in Matthew 16 when he said, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He was literally standing at that gate making that declaration. And we know that it wasn't long after that, he actually busted through that gate, went down into the grave, preached the gospel to the wicked, led captivity captive, and now has the keys. So he actually did it. But that's, of course, if you were a Pharisee because they believed in resurrection. If you were a Sadducee, then you were just Sadducee because you just stayed dead. That was their view of the afterlife. They had no view of punishment in the afterlife. It was all about shame. And so I was like, why did they try to stone Jesus about him talking about Lazarus and the rich man in compartments in the grave? That don't make any sense until you understand that it's not about that. It's about who's in and who's out. Because you see, when Jesus... He's standing in front of a bunch of Pharisees. He says, let me tell you a story. There was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man was clothed in purple. He was clothed in all these garments. And every one of them were like, yep, that's us. We know this story. And normally when the story is told, the rich man has a name and the poor man doesn't have a name. But Jesus flipped the script. He said, then there was a poor man, and the rich man walked by him every day and didn't pay any attention to him. He viewed him as one of those people. He, he viewed him as someone that didn't have any value, and he gave him the name Lazarus. But that's the English of a Greek word. But Jesus didn't speak English or Greek. Jesus was speaking Aramaic. And when you transliterate the word Lazarus to Aramaic, it's the Aramaic word Eleazar. Now, what's important about that, it's extremely important to understand that because the Jews standing there, when Jesus said the poor man's name is Eleazar, their ears perked up because if you remember who Eleazar was in the Old Testament, he was the servant of Father Abraham. 
Matter of fact, he's the one that Father Abraham sent out to find a bride for Isaac, for his son. Matter of fact, Eleazar was the one that Abraham is crying out to God one day, and he says, I have no son, I have no heir, I have all this riches, I have all this wealth, and I have no one to give my wealth to except for my servant Eleazar, who's not a part of the covenant, or he's one of them. And so Jesus says they both die. And they're both carried into Sheol, into the grave, into Hades. And Eleazar is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is not. You want to know why they got angry? It's because Jesus told a bunch of Jews, you think you're in because of natural lineage. I'm here to tell you the people that you've excluded are actually the ones that are going to be included. And those of you that think you're in, You want to know why they start? Listen, do you know how mad you got to be to gnash your teeth? I mean, they gna- I mean, have you ever been? I mean, I've gotten angry before. I don't think I. I mean, you have lost. You're demonic if you're not. Na- you've lost your mind. I mean, you get so mad. I mean, since they gnash their teeth at them. I mean, I mean, you, you ain't just mad. You are downright ticked. You've lost it. So that 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 whole story isn't really about compartments of hell, even though there very well may be. That's not the point. The, the point is, that's why, that's why the rich man then said, would you send Eleazar back to my five brothers? And he said, they got the law and the prophets and they don't believe. In other words, the preaching of hell don't work. Because it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance, not fear. 18 sermons in the book of Acts, not one sermon about heaven or not one sermon about hell. The afterlife was not the message of the gospel in the early church. It was real. They taught there was, there is a heaven, there is a, a, a literal place called hell, a couple of them actually in, in, in the New Testament, but that wasn't the point. The point was that wasn't the focus of their sermons. The focus of their sermons was eternal life, which is having a relationship with the Father and a relationship with the Son. It was about a new king. It was about a new kingdom. It was about a new Lord. And it was about bringing change into this world. Amen. Are y'all still with me? You doing okay? Listen. So that's when Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. And they said, when? We've been with you 24-7, 365. When did this happen? He said, if you've done it to the least of these then you've actually done it to me. In other words, how you treat those people, whoever they are to you. Because you see, Jesus came according to Colossians and Galatians and the Apostle Paul. Jesus came to remove all the middle walls of partition so that now in Christ there's neither bond nor free, male nor female, black nor white, Republican or Democrat. He, he, he came and he said, listen, there's now one new man created in Christ. There is no us and them. It's one big us. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. 
one big us. That's why Paul would stand on Mars Hill in Acts 17, preach to nothing but pagans. And he said, in him you live, in him you move, in him you have your being, for we are all God's offspring. We're all his genos, his children, his family, and his kind because we all come from one blood. We are all humans, but we just have different hues. Nothing irritate me quicker than I hear preachers say, our church is a multiracial church. Nothing irritate me quicker. I always say, you're a multiracial church, so everybody's bringing their dogs and cats to service, so the, 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 the human race and the animal race are worshiping together. You put two humans together, what do you get? A human. All right, I, I have two little granddaughters. Their daddy is Hispanic, their, their, mom is, their mom is white, and my son and his wife are wanting to start having kids. My son is white, my daughter-in-law is black, and we're going to have nothing but absolute beautiful babies. And I tell my little grandbabies all the time, if anybody tries to tell them that they are multiracial, I mean, they're going to they're gonna have me walk right up to them and say, no, they're called multicultural because two humans came together and produced a human, and it just made them with different hues. That's it. Matter of fact, you go to the end of the book of Revelation, it never says he saw races anywhere. I saw tongues, kindreds, kinds, languages, not races. There's only one race, human. Someone please say amen. Matter of fact, I tell my granddaughters all the time, you know, I mean, they call me a Caucasian American, but you're a Mexican American. That means you can do it more than me. My other grandchildren will be African-American. He said, you can double can do it. I only get one can. You get two. <laughs> I can already see it. It's going to take every ounce of the grace of God in me. When my wife and I are pushing our little black grandbabies in the mall and someone come up and say something, it's going to take every bit of the grace of God in me to not smack them right upside the head. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. There, there is no us and them. There's just us. One big us. Matter of fact, do you know that the Romans in the first century were not persecuting the church until nearly the 50s? The persecution the church was getting was from the religious people, was from, was from the Jews. The Romans didn't start persecuting them until there was a fire in Rome and Nero blamed it on the Christians and then they start persecuting the Christians. Do you know what the Romans thought the Christians were in the first 50 years of the church? They thought they were a sex cult. Study it. Because they always greeted each other with holy kisses. I mean, I people say, we need to get back to being biblical. Well, you don't make out when you walk in the door. You, you ain't being completely biblical. I mean, in post-COVID days, you want to come up and give me a kiss? I'm like, ah, fist bump's good. I'm I mean, they were always hugging each other and loving each other, and they thought, man, these folks, you ain't got to worry about them. They just, they're a cult. They're just loving on each other all the time. There's something wrong with these people. The sad thing is, is that could probably hardly ever be said. I mean, I, I still go in churches, and it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's a family on this side that's not talked to a family on this side for 15 years, and they still go to church together. And then we wonder why most of the world says, I, I, I don't need that. They don't even love each other in the building, let alone then love us out there because the litmus test of whether you're a follower of Jesus is whether you radically love humans. Now watch this, and i got to land this plane. 
Jesus said, if you've done this to the least of these and you've actually done it to me, in other words, how you treat other humans is actually what you think about me. No wonder Peter denies the Lord three times and Jesus rises from the dead and he walks up to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, sir, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He said, if you love me, then this is what will flow from your life. And then Saul, full of zeal for the law of God, and Saul, who was one of the most biblical people in the first century, and he's doing what he feels is correct. And on the Damascus Road, Jesus reveals himself to him. And notice what Jesus says to him. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, how you treat those people is actually what you think about me. pretty heavy. I mentioned to you that when we started our church, what my prayer was, well, we started in a basement hall, and it had orange shag carpet, mirrors all around, a big bar in the corner, and, you know, if you tried to throw your hands in the air like you just didn't care, you'd, like, break your fingers because the ceiling was real low. (laughs) We had folks literally, like, hurt themselves, just throwing their hand in the air. But it was only, they, they let us use the chairs. It was $380 a month to start the church. And I'm like, if nobody comes, I didn't pay for that. And I'm like, it was cheap. It was a good place to start. But about our second month, we had this, this man. He was riding his bike past, and he heard music coming from the basement, and he turned his bike around, and he walked down the stairs, and he came into the service. His name was Jeff. And Jeff was known in Saginaw, well-known as the town drunk. Jeff always had elbow pads and knee pads on because he was always falling off his bike. And he come in and sat through the service, and afterwards he wanted to come up and meet me. I happened to be home because I only preached once or twice a month because I had a whole team that really led the church. And he wanted to meet me, and he comes up. He's like, I want to meet the bishop, and, and, and we get talking. And Jeff, Jeff turned into, at our church, he became our norm from Cheers. Like he'd walk in the door, but he'd be like, Jeff! You know, everybody under 35, just Google Norm in Cheers. All right. If you don't watch TV land, you might find it there. I don't know. But 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 just, just look that up because Norm is a guy, you know, he's overweight. He don't like his job. He don't have a great marriage. But he found a place where everybody knew his name. He found a place where he felt safe. And I've said for years that the bar is the world's church. They go at least once a week. They get a good message from the pastor or the bartender. He says everything's going to be okay. There's a little something to eat there. There's a little something to drink there. People dance there. They sing. They shout. Sometimes they even fall on the floor. And then a lot of times they show up to our church and they're like, man, this place is a drag. I got more fun in my church. <laughs> but he'd walk in the door and, man, everybody would embrace him. And he always had a backpack on and you'd give him a hug and there'd be like four or five fifths bouncing around back there. You'd, you'd, you'd hear him. And about three months, I mean, he was coming to every service and then we were able to finally move into like a storefront so we didn't have to set up and tear down every week. And so I got up and I said, now I'm going to be home for the next three weeks 
And every day, Monday through Saturday, from 10 a.m. till about 9 or 10 at night, I'm going to be over at the building. We've got to build a platform. We've got to build a sound booth. We've got some drywalling and painting to do. We've got to get everything ready so in three weeks we can move out of here and move in there. And he comes up afterwards. He's like, I'm, I'm going to be there tomorrow. And I said, okay, well, praise the Lord. Didn't expect him to show up. I show up, and, of course, there's a bunch of cars there because all the saints get excited the first day to do some work. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're with you, Pastor, one day. <laughs> so on Monday, everybody shows up. They're all excited, and Jeff's there. He's tying up his bike, and this guy's a machine, man. I mean, he's drywalling. He's building stuff. I'm like, wow, praise God. I didn't expect this at all. Well, Tuesday comes around, and it's just me and Jeff. So comes lunchtime, I said, hey, Jeff, let's, let's go to eat. I'm, I'm buying. We just went and sat at Burger King. And I said, you know what? I've never asked you your story. Tell me, tell me your story. He said, well, he said, when I was in my early 20s, I was married. And he said, I had my own business. I was a contractor. I said, okay, well, this makes sense. He said, but I fell two stories off of a ladder and I broke my back. And he said, there's always been a lot of addiction in my family. And I ended up getting addicted to to Oxycontin and Vicodin, and then it led to alcohol and heroin and meth and all kinds of stuff. He said, I've been in and out of rehabs for 30 years. And he said, to be honest with you, I've just really kind of lost hope for that part of my life. And he said, but can I share something with you? I said, sure, Jeff. He said, I don't just wear these elbow pads and knee pads because I fall off my bike. He said, the weekends are very difficult for me. He said, because there are kids that know kind of my, my path. And he said, on the weekends, I'll be riding my bike, and people will run out from behind buildings and knock me off my bike. He said, people open their car doors and knock me off my bike. He said, I get spit on quite a bit. He said, my weekends are really difficult. And he said, but I wake up on Sunday, and I said, I just need to go somewhere. I won't be judged. Someplace where I'll feel completely safe and loved. And he said, my first thought is to come visit you all. And I sat there at Burger King, and I just started to cry like a little baby. And he's like, are you okay? I was like, no, did Jeff, listen, it's all good. And I told him what I prayed a year before about our church. I said, Jeff, you have no idea how blessed I am that you feel safe with us. Because people felt safe with Jesus. Matter of fact, the only people that ever got Jesus angry was not sinners. It was the religious who were causing an us versus them paradigm. It was the Pharisees that he'd get upset at. He was a friend of sinners, which means not everybody that got around Jesus changed. He wasn't a friend of ex-sinners. That means no matter how much mess people had, they still felt safe with him, and he was still their friend because love just loves. He didn't. He wasn't trying to love people to get a notch on his belt to try to bring them to synagogue or try to get them to change. And, and, and yeah, I love you now, but you know, if you don't change within five days, I'm not going to love you anymore. It's like, no, I love you just because I'm love. About four months later, we didn't see Jeff anymore. To this day, we're not really sure what happened to him. We don't know if he died, if he went south. I mean, we, we, we just don't know what happened to Jeff. We tried to find him. But we were a part of 
loving on a man that nobody else loved. And Jeff was one of those people. He was one of them that in most churches, if Jeff walked in, most people would be looking a little nervous. I have a spiritual son in the Detroit area. He became a youth pastor at a church of about 150 adults, and within two years, he was having three or 400 kids from the inner city coming to his youth group. And he got fired. The reason the church fired him is because they said, the adults said, we don't want those kind messing up our carpet. We don't want those people in our church, but yet that's the point. You can get new carpet. You can clean things. Because let me tell you something. If we're going to really affect our communities, if we could just get the one thing down and say what we want to be known for more than anything else is that we radically love If I ever have a gravestone, because I don't know if I'm going to be buried, I don't know if I'm going to be burned, I don't know. I don't know if I want people looking at my dead corpse. I'm not there anyway. I haven't decided about that. Plus, your physical body's not the one that's raised anyway. It's a spiritual body. You can actually study 1 Corinthians 15. It all turns to dust anyway. People get silly about that stuff. But if there was an epitaph over my my gravestone, I would want it to say he, he radically loved. I don't think I'm ever going to stand before God one day and he say, you know what? You just preached me as way too loving. <laughs> oh, I, I've had Christians and preachers tell me, oh, you just, you preach too much love. We, we, had, we had one lady that wouldn't come to our church because she said, I heard all, the, all, all they talked about over there is love, love, love. And I'm like, compared to what? Hate, 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 and fear, fear, fear. I mean, can you imagine a Christian criticizing you for being too loving? I can't, I can't comprehend it. Yeah, well, I know. God, he is love. But you see, the, 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 the mindset, religion breeds a pharisaical, separatist, us and them mentality, and we all still deal with some prejudices in our heart. And the gospel is there to deal with our attitudes and how we walk this life with humans. That's why it's easier to just just say, all I need is Jesus, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Just follow Moses because you can just go hang out at a convent or hang out somewhere else and just wear some linen and just pray all day, but you ain't got to then ever do the gospel and actually deal with people. See, I, 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 don't, I don't know all of you here. You, you might be here and you've already received the love of God. You're already a part of this house. But you also might be here today and maybe somebody dragged you here. Maybe you're here and you're not even sure why you're here. Maybe you're visiting. But maybe you walked in here and you, 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 felt, you felt safe. You didn't feel like you were being judged and attacked. And maybe you heard something today for the first time that this is what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about rules. It's about relationships. 
true Christianity and walking with Jesus is he teaches you how to be a true human. He shows you how to treat other humans and how to get along. I remember sitting by an atheist in an airplane one time, and, and he, argue, he was trying to argue with me that Jesus wasn't God. I said, okay, let's set all that aside. Let's just set aside the idea that I believe Jesus was God in the flesh, and you don't believe it. I said, let me ask you a question. He claimed to be an atheist, and I said, if every human on the planet lived the ethics of Jesus, lived the Sermon on the Mount, lived other-centered, what would the earth look like? And he said, heaven on earth. And I'm like, that's not good enough? You might not believe he's God, but don't you think that what he taught was worthy to follow because it makes people better humans? Now, obviously, it's best that they see him as Savior because they need to be saved, obviously. But for crying out loud, that was... Gandhi, Gandhi, as a 20-year-old man, read through the Gospels three times, became convinced that Jesus was God in the flesh, showed up at a church to make a public confession, and they wouldn't let him in the door because of the color of his skin. And so Gandhi, a good portion of his life, lived the message of Jesus, and he's the one who made it famous. You're Jesus I like, you're Christians not so much. Because those religious people viewed him as one of those people. That's not what this message is about. It is about including the excluded. It's about the people that are ostracized and marginalized. It's caring for widows and orphans. See, a gospel that is also a social gospel is not liberal. It's part of the gospel. If we don't include justice and dealing with injustices, if we don't deal with prejudice, if we don't deal with the things that matter in people's lives, the gospel encompasses all of that. It's taking care of the poor. It's loving the unlovely. Because how I treat you ultimately is what I actually think about Jesus. And so I don't have permission to be ugly to you ever. Ever. I can't look at you. I can't look at you like a lot of the church. A lot of the church still views people in two categories, sons of God and sons of the devil. I said Friday night, the devil does not have a reproductive organ. That's hyperbole. It's not literal. That's what Adolf Hitler used to convince a nation of Lutheran Christians it was okay to slaughter three million Jews because they were demon seed. They were not in the image and likeness of God. That's why we had slavery in America. Preachers had slaves because they used verses that these, the sons of God are those that pray the magic prayer, and then their sons of the devil are everybody that's demon seed, and so you can do whatever you want with them, and that's not what the Scripture is talking about at all. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. According to Paul, God is the father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in all. That means he's even in the people you don't think he's in. According to John 1, he was the light of the world, and his light is in all men. There's light in every human. Sometimes it's just harder to find it. Because we're all God's offspring. 
where all his children, all in the imagio deo, everyone in the image and likeness of God, just not everybody knows it, and so they don't live like it. I want to I wanna encourage you guys. I, I, I pray you not hear me preaching at you today. Listen, I can preach this here because, I mean, I can sense this is the heart of this house. It's where you guys are heading to. But when God starts sending people in this door, that are those people. In my church in Michigan, there's folks that were religious that would last barely two weeks because every Sunday in the sanctuary, you heard F words. I mean, people were cussing. I, I, I set up a smoking section right outside the main door about 15 feet away and put an ashtray and, and it said smoking section because I, I don't want anybody to have any excuses about not coming in. If you're still struggling in a certain area of your life, listen, you can have a smoke out there, come in and hear the gospel. If you need to go out after the worship and have another smoke, get back in here and hear the good news. I'm removing all the excuses. Because when I was growing up, if you walked out the front door and someone was standing there smoking, people would look at them like, oh. On their way to the buffet. Because <laughs> we're okay with gluttony, but not smoking. And if you go to that Blossoms one they all took to me on Saturday, you're going to hurt yourself at that place. Lord have mercy. I was like, heavens. I got all this Chinese food and then saw steaks. I was whoa. <laughs> Where'd that come from? See, if we could ever just get the one thing, the one thing down, it would transform our cities. Bow your heads, would you? Father, I, I thank you today. Matter of fact, you even told us that this is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us. Father, we know that it's nearly impossible for any of us to truly love with agape until we received your love. And we awaken to your love. So, Lord, I, I ask if there's anybody here in this building or anyone that may listen to this in the future that maybe haven't received your love, that today, that you just arrest their heart with your goodness and your love. Let them know that it's not a bunch of rules that we keep that are written on rocks, but it's, it's a love that keeps us, that it's your goodness that transforms us. But for all of us in here that have received your love, help us to love as you love because that's why we're here. Let that love increase in our hearts and our lives and be demonstrated greater. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Now do one thing. Would you put your hand on your hearts, everybody? Would you do that with me? I want you to pray this out loud. I believe it's important. Scripture says, I believe, therefore I speak. There's something about confession and opening your mouth, it's extremely important. But pray this with me out loud. Father, in Jesus' name, I receive your love today, fresh in my heart, by the Holy Spirit. Let your love transform me. Let it change me. But then flow through me with that love to love those people, whoever they are in my life. Remove the prejudice, remove the anger, and replace it with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Now, 
as, as we close, um, I have something extremely practical. Uh, Pastor's going to also close the service and, and receive a, a love offering for our ministry. I want to thank you all ahead of time uh, for already being a blessing to us the last two, day, two days. And I thank you for that. But if, if you're going to choose between uh, giving an offering or doing this today, I'd rather you do what I'm about to share with you. I have something very practical that can actually walk out. We can leave this building saying, I not only heard a message, but I'm going to do something about it. Uh, for more than 25 years, our ministry has partnered uh, with a ministry by the name of Compassion International. Uh, we, have, uh, we have partnered with them for over 25 years. When both of my kids were very small, we began to sponsor two kids. Compassion is one of the largest nonprofits in the world that help clothe, feed, and educate children in third world countries that are extremely poor. Uh, many of them are orphans. Many of them, uh, literally, they don't have anything to eat that day. And a lot of them, they have free schooling in a lot of these nations, but the kids can't go to school unless they have a uniform. And so school is free, but they can't go to school without the uniform. And so Compassion helps them clothe them and feeds them and educates them. And one thing that's amazing about Compassion is nearly $900 million a year nonprofit, and they function on less than 18% overhead. Anybody that knows anything about business in here, that is unheard of. Literally 82.5% of everything you send in monthly goes directly to that child and not in the pockets of CEOs. I went fishing in Canada with a man that built it for the last 28 years. He just retired and turned it over to another man. And, I mean, there's very few people that I meet, and within five minutes, I'm so impressed, I want to spend time with them. All right, and, and, and they call him Papa Wes. And, and Wes, I'm, I'm sitting there fishing. We had a four-day fishing trip in Canada, and the first two days he was in a boat with me. And the third day I went up to the guy ahead of the trip. I said, I need to be in a different boat the next two days. He said, why? I said, because all I've done is cry for two days. I said, I, said, I actually want to enjoy some fishing because he'd be fishing telling you stories. And, I mean, I was a wreck for like two days. This is a man that normally a $900 million a year corporation, the president or the CEO, is normally making millions. They had to force him to take a full salary with retirement and everything. It was under $350,000. But on top of that, he supports 65 children a month. He puts most of it right back in. And he can tell you all of their names. Passionate about it. Why? Because when he was nine years old, he was a missionary in the Ivory Coast in Africa, and all of his village and all of his friends were dying of measles. And he went to his daddy. He said, Daddy, when am I going to die? And he said, Son, you're not going to die of this. He said, How do you know? He said, Son, you, you have medicine, because, of course, that's when it used to be a scar in your shoulder. And he said, this medicine is going to keep you from it. He said, Well, Daddy, is there more medicine? He said, There's plenty of medicine. Can we get it? He said, There's no money. And he said, I made up my mind at nine years old that I wanted to spend my life making sure that children did not die of useless stuff and if I could do something about it. My wife and I, we started supporting a little boy and girl over 25 years ago because I wanted my children to know there's something more important on the planet than the next pair of Jordans. I wanted them to know there's children in the world that don't have anything 
like you have. Some of you may have gone to a Christian concert before, and you've actually seen people stand up in the middle and say, sponsor a child, but you weren't sure if it was a scam or not. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of times we hear about those feeding programs, and we find out later that, you know, they're, they're not doing half of what they've done. Listen, I'm telling you, I've been overseas, and I see what they do, boots on the ground, and it is life-changing stuff. My last trip was to Ecuador with them, and we went up in the mountains and spent a whole day. I spent a whole day with a single mom with four boys, a little small kitchen area, a little dining room, and they all slept in one big bed. She raised an onion patch to make money and sold and raised guinea pigs to eat and sell. She made $30 a year. $30 a year. The place was all dirt. It was all mud. God sent me there for a purpose because I absolutely detest onions. And I had to spend two hours in an onion patch, hoeing, being humbled because I was gagging the whole time. I did two rows to everybody's one, and they're like, man, ooh, man, you are good at this. The first time I was the chief hoe was like, <laughs> and I mean, I'm... I'm going real fast, and they're like, whoa. I was like, no, I want to get out of the onions. I mean, I'm gagging. <laughs> I remember Wes told me the one story that there was a little boy in Kenya that got sponsored by a 58-year-old single woman who was a teacher in England, and she sent him. It's $38 a month, $38 a month, clothes, feeds, educate, plus two doctor visits a year. And nowadays, that's about five trips to Starbucks. Or if you have a family of three, that's one trip to Arby's. It's amazing anymore. Just what, just McDonald's for crying out loud. And they started corresponding back and forth and she wrote a letter and the little boy wrote her back and he said, you know, I'm ugly, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody. And she said, that's not true. She said, I look at your picture every single day. You're a handsome boy. There's a, there's, and, and she's encouraging him. And finally she said, well, what do you like to do? He said, well, I really like to run. She said, well, you need to run as fast as you can. So a year later he writes her a letter, and he said, I'm faster than all my friends. Two years later he said, I'm fastest in my class. A couple years later he said, I'm fastest in my school. Seven years later he makes the Kenyan Olympic team, and he wins a gold medal. Compassion hears about it. They fly him to England. This woman's now in her 70s and retired, and she's sitting in a rocking chair, and they, they video this, and he walks in, and he falls, on his, he falls on his knees in front of her sobbing, and he gives her the gold medal, and she said, I can't accept this. He said, you don't understand. If you wouldn't have done this, if you wouldn't have encouraged me, if you wouldn't have helped clothe me and take care of me, none of this would have took place. We have no idea the difference we can make in the heart of a child. And we can talk about how much we love God, but put your money where your mouth is. It's a whole nother ball game where we got to actually do something about it. And so I have a, a short video. At the close of the service after pastor closes, out on my table out there, many of you probably already saw them as a bunch of packets, pictures of kids. You actually can choose the child you want to sponsor. I encourage grandparents, do this for your grandkids. It's so important. I mean, I, I have churches all the time. The, the kids ministry or youth minister will each sponsor a child so the kids can correspond. It's life-changing for these kids, but you, you get to actually choose the child, and I'll be out there, and there's just a little cutoff to fill out. You don't have to pay anything right now. You just fill it out, and then they start corresponding with you and start sending you letters. You can send Christmas gifts. One year, we sent 
two soccer balls for Christmas, and the kids wrote us letters, and they became the most popular kids in their village because nobody had a soccer ball. And we had three flat ones in the garage, two blown up out in the yard. We're so blessed. We're crazy blessed. And so I just ask that you pray about this and consider. I, I, I'd love to be able to say I went to West Columbia, South Carolina for the first time. I went to this great church called Crossroads World Outreach. And we saw the gifts flow. We had people encouraged, and I heard the gospel. But before I left, we helped get 15 to 20 kids off poverty. That excites me because that's where the rubber meets the road. So would you please uh, play that video? And at the close, meet me at the table. Thank you.
I mean, wow, what, what am I even supposed to say now? <clears throat> Church, will you stand and pray with me? See, Bishop Jamie knows my vision for this church, and this is my vision for this church. That we would be known as a house of love that drives out fear. That when people enter this place, they feel safe. And if you're not on board with that, I don't know what to tell you. We believe God is our Father, and He is love. He is light, and He is life. We believe Jesus came to show the heart of the Father to the world. We believe the message that Jesus spoke, that how you treat the least of these is how you see me. Church, let's raise our hands to heaven and pray together. Jesus, our Messiah, our King, our Lord, our brother, our friend, we just pray. As Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God will be poured out in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And that radical love for each other, radical love for our community, radical love for all people would transcend here. That our hearts would be filled that those of us who are so stuck on judgment and wrath, that the love of God would start to transform the very way we see him. Because it's love that transforms. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would all be always be a house that is worried about catching fish and not cleaning them, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to do his job and we would do ours of loving people, that any prejudice that is in our heart, you remove it, that neither color of skin nor creed nor language nor nationality would separate us. And Jesus, I just pray you put it on our hearts to su support some of these children to change their lives. We are so blessed to live in this country. We are so blessed with the resources that we have. And Jesus, I just pray that through your love, you just produce insane generosity. Where our hearts are not just for our church family, not just for our, our natural blood relational families, but our heart is for the world. And faith family, before we leave, if if you want to bless Jamie's ministry as he travels the world, he does this full time. And he, I mean, whatever he gets from church is what he takes to travel and to provide for his family. So if anything Jamie has said today moved your heart, I just pray that you would pray about giving a love offering in this basket up here. That this message of love is, is needed in the whole world. That people who are broken in third world countries need to know there's a God and a father who loves them in the midst of it all. That fear and wrath and judgment means nothing to these children. They face hell every day of their lives in the slums of the world. You don't got to tell them about a hell to come. They live in a physical hell now. But they need to know that the love of God is theirs. That they are his child and they are loved by him. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this day. I pray that we leave here looking more like you, talking more like you, living more like you, and walking more like you. That day by day we conform to your image. That no matter what we were taught growing up in church or what we think is right, that we would submit every thought to you, King Jesus. That you would be our theology. You are our example. And Jesus, we just thank you for this day. 
In my name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church family. Thank you for being here today. Once again, if you want to bless Bishop Jamie to help his traveling, the basket's up here. You can give to that. But also, please go see his booth of Holy Spirit. Put it on your heart to provide for a child.